Chapters seven and eight of the Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter seven. The Lapland was two days out from Tilbury before Pamela appeared on deck, followed by her maid with an armful of cushions and the deck steward with her rugs. She had scarcely made herself comfortable in a sunny corner when she was aware of the approach of a large familiar figure. Her astonishment was entirely genuine. "'Mr. Fisher!' she exclaimed. "'Why, how on earth did you catch this steamer? I thought you were coming on the Thursday boat.' "'Some inducement to change my mind,' Mr. Fisher replied, drawing a chair up to her side. "'Meaning me?' "'I guess that's so.' "'Of course I'm exceedingly flattered.' pamela observed or rather i should be if i believed you but i don't see how you could leave a supper party at henry's and go straight to tilbury say how did you know i was supping at henry's he inquired because i was there for luncheon myself as you know she answered carelessly and i heard you order your table for supper mr fisher nodded reminiscently i always wind up with a little supper at henry's on my last night in london he remarked it left me two hours to get down to Tilbury, but it don't take me long to start for anywhere when I once make up my mind. That's the American of us, I suppose. Besides, I never need much in the way of luggage. I keep clothes over on the other side and clothes in New York, and a grip always ready packed for a journey. You're so typical, she murmured, smiling. I don't know about that, he replied. My business makes it necessary for me to be always on the go. Have you heard from your brother lately? Pamela shook her head. Jimmy is the most terrible correspondent, she complained. I don't think I've had any mail from him for two months. You didn't know that he and I were sharing rooms together then, in the Plaza Hotel, I suppose. Pamela turned her head a little and gazed at her companion in genuine surprise. Sharing rooms in the Plaza Hotel, she repeated. You and Jimmy? I guess that's so, Mr. Fisher assented. We were doing business together one day, and the subject cropped up somehow or other. Your brother was thinking of making a move, and I'd just been shown these rooms, which were a trifle on the large side for me. I made him an offer, and he jumped at it. "'I hope you're not leading James into extravagant ways,' she remarked anxiously. "'I loved his little apartment at 42nd Street, and it was so inexpensive.' your brother's share of these rooms isn't anything more than he can afford mr fisher assured her that i can promise you i guess his firm is doing well just now if they've many more clients like me they are it's awfully nice of you to put business in his way pamela said thoughtfully i wonder why you do it mr fisher why shouldn't i well pamela went on her eyes travelling out seaward for a moment you seem to be one of those sort of men mr fisher who never do anything without an object. Some powers of observation, he admitted blithely. You have an object in being kind to Jimmy, then. Mr. Fisher produced a cigar case and selected a cheroot. Mind my smoking? Not in the least. The only time I mind things is when people don't answer my questions. I was only kind of hesitating, Mr. Fisher went on, leaning back once more in his chair. You want the truth, don't you? I never think anything else is worth while. In the first place, then, her companion began, your brother belongs to what I suppose is known as the exclusive set in New York. 
I am a Westerner with few friends there. Through him I have obtained introductions to several people whom it was interesting to me, from a business point of view, to know. "'I see,' Pamela murmured. "'You are at least frank, Mr. Fisher.' "'I am going to be more frank still,' he promised her. Then another reason, of course, was because I liked him, and a third, which I am not sure wasn't the chief of all, because he was your brother. Pamela laughed gaily. "'Is that necessary?' "'Necessary or not, is the truth,' he assured her. "'I am a man of quick impressions and lasting ones.' "'But we've never met except on a steamer,' Pamela reminded him. "'I know it's the fashion,' Mr. Fisher said, "'to turn up one's nose at steamer acquaintances. It isn't like that with me. You see, I don't have as much opportunity of meeting folk as some others, perhaps.' The most interesting people I've known socially I've met on steamers. I sat at your table, side by side with you, Miss Van Tail, for seven days a few months ago. I guess I'll remember those seven days as long as I live. Pamela turned her head and looked at him. The faintly derisive smile died away from her lips. The man was in earnest. A certain curiosity stole into her eyes as the seconds passed. She studied his hard, strong face with its great jaw and prominent forehead. The mouth a little too full, and belying the rest of his physiognomy, yet with its own peculiar strength. He had taken off his spectacles, and it seemed to her that the cold flinty light of his eyes had caught for a moment some touch of the softer blue of the sea or the sky. Seated he lost some of the awkwardness of his too great and ill-carried height. It seemed to her that he was, at least, a person to be reckoned with, either in friendship or enmity. "'Are you an American-born, Mr. Fisher?' she asked him. He shook his head. "'I was born at Offenbach,' he told her, near Frankfurt. My father brought me out to America when I was eleven years old. "'You must find the present condition of things a little trying for you,' she observed. Oscar Fisher put on his glasses again. He did not answer for several moments. "'That opens up the subject, Miss Van Tail,' he said which some day I should like to discuss with you. "'Why not now?' she invited. "'I feel much more inclined for conversation than reading.' "'Tell me, then, to begin with,' he asked thoughtfully, "'on which side are your sympathies?' "'I try to do my duty as an American citizen,' she replied promptly, "'and that is to have no sympathies. Our dear country has set the world an example of what neutrality should be.' I think it is the duty of us Americans to try and bring ourselves into exactly the same line of feeling. He changed his position a little uneasily. His attitude became less of a sprawl. His eyes were fixed upon her face. I fear, he said, that we're going to begin by a disagreement. I do not consider that America has realized, in the least, the duties of a neutral nation. You must explain that at once, if you please, before we go any further. Pamela insisted. "'Is this neutrality?' Fisher demanded, his rather harsh voice almost raucous now with a touch of real feeling. "'America ships daily millions of dollars' worth of those things that make war possible, to France, to Italy, above all, to England. She keeps them supplied with ammunition, clothing, scientific instruments, food, a dozen things which make war easier. To Germany she sends nothing. Is that neutrality?' but america is perfectly willing to deal in the same way with germany pamela pointed out german agents can come and place their orders and take away whatever they want 
the market is as much open to her as to the allies fischer was sitting bolt upright in his chair now there was a little spot of color in his cheeks and his eyes flashed behind his spectacles he struck the side of the chair he was very angry that is jesuitical he declared it is perfectly well known that germany is not in a position to fetch munitions from america therefore i say that there is no neutrality in supplying one side in the war with goods which the other is unable to procure then you place upon america the onus of germany's naval inferiority pamela remarked dryly germany's maritime inferiority does not exist mr fisher protested when the moment arrives that the high seas fleet comes out for action the world will know the truth then hadn't it better come pamela suggested and clear the ocean for your commerce that isn't the point fisher insisted we have wandered from the main issue i say that america abandons its neutrality when it helps the allies to continue the war i don't think you will find pamela replied that international law prevents any neutral country from supplying either combatant with munitions if one country can fetch the things and the other can't that is the misfortune of the country that can't for one moment look at the matter from england's point of view she has built up a mighty navy to keep the seas clear for exactly this purpose to continue her commerce from abroad germany instead has built up a mighty army with which she has overrun europe germany has had the advantage from her army why shouldn't england have the advantage from her navy let me ask you the question you asked me a few minutes ago her companion begged were you born in america or england i was born in america pamela told him so were my parents and my grandparents i claim to be american to the backbone i claim even to treat any sympathies i may have in this affair as prejudices and not even to allow them a single corner in my brain mr fisher sat quite still for several moments he was struggling very hard to keep his temper in the end he succeeded we will not then pursue the subject of america's neutrality he said because it is obvious that we disagree fundamentally but tell me this now as an american and a patriot what do you think would be better for america that germany and austria won this war or the allies upon that question i have not altogether made up my mind pamela confessed then there is room there for a discussion mr fisher pointed out eagerly i should like to put my views before you on this matter and i should love to hear them pamela replied but i feel just now as though we had talked enough politics do you know that i came up on deck in a state of great agitation submarine alarms from the stewardess mr fisher suggested i am not afraid of submarines but i have a most profound dislike for thieves pamela declared you have not had anything stolen he asked quickly i have not pamela replied but the only reason seems to be that i have nothing worth stealing when i got back from luncheon this afternoon i found that my stateroom had been systematically searched she turned her head a little lazily and looked at her neighbor his expression was entirely sympathetic your jewelry deposited with the purser i congratulate you he said nothing has been stolen she observed but one hates the feeling of insecurity all the same both my steward and stewardess are old friends it must have been a very clever person who found his way into my room a very clever person mr fisher objected 
would have known that you had deposited your jewels with the purser. "'If it was my jewels of which they were in search,' Pamela murmured. "'By the by, do you remember all that fuss about the disappearance of a young soldier that morning at Henry's?' Fisher nodded. "'I heard something about it,' he confessed. "'They were talking about it at dinner-time.' "'I had an idea that you might be interested,' Pamela went on. "'He was rather a foolish young man.' He came into the restaurant telling everyone at the top of his voice that he had made a great discovery. Even in London, which is, I should think, the most prosaic city in the world, there must be people who are on the lookout to pick up war secrets. Even in London, as you remarked, Fisher assented. You didn't hear the end of the affair, I suppose, she asked him. The steward had arrived with afternoon tea. Fisher threw into the sea the cigar which he had been smoking. I do not think, he said, that the end has been reached yet. Pamela sighed. L'aurie en me, she quoted. I suppose one has to be careful everywhere. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 It was one evening towards the end of the voyage, and about an hour after dinner. A huge form loomed out of the darkness, continuing its steady promenade along the unlit portion of the deck. Pamela, moved by some caprice, abandoned her caution of the last few days and called out, "'Mr. Fisher!' He stopped short. The sparks flew from the red end of his cigar, which he tossed into the sea. He hastened towards her. "'Miss Van Tail,' he replied, a little hesitatingly. "'How clever of you to know my voice,' she observed. "'I am in the humour to talk. Will you sit down, please?' Mr. Fisher humbly drew a chair to her side. I had an idea, he said, that you had been avoiding me the last two or three days. I have, she admitted. Have I offended you, then? Uh, scarcely that, she replied. Only, you see, it seemed waste of time to talk to you with the foils on, and a little dangerous, perhaps, to talk to you with them off. His face reflected his admiration. Miss Van Tail, he declared, you are quite a wonderful person. I have never believed very much in women before. Perhaps that is the reason why I have never married. Dear me, are you a woman-hater? she asked. He looked at her steadfastly. I have made use of women as playthings, he confessed. Until I met you, I never thought of them as companions, as partners. She laughed at him through the darkness, and at the sound of her laugh his eyes glowed. Really, I am very much flattered, she said. You give me credit for intelligence, then? I give you credit for every gift a woman should have, he answered enthusiastically. I recognize in you the woman I have sometimes dreamed of. Again she laughed. Don't tell me, Mr. Fisher, she protested, that ever in your practical life you have spent a single moment in dreams? I have spent many, he assured her, but they have all been since I knew you. Pamela sighed. I have never been through a voyage, she observed, without a love affair. Still, I never suspected you, Mr. Fisher. You suspected me, perhaps, of other things. She nodded. I am full of suspicions about you, she admitted. I am not going to tell you what they are, of course. There is one thing of which I am guilty, he confessed. I should like to tell you about it right now. Could I guess it? You're clever enough. You like me, don't you, Mr. Fisher? better than any woman in the world, he answered promptly. And my confession is, well, just that. Will you marry me? Pamela shook her head. Quite early in life, she confided, 
I made up my mind that I would never give a definite answer to anyone who proposed to me on a steamer. I suppose it's the wind, or is it the stars, or the silence, or what? I have known the sanest of men, even like you, Mr. Fisher, become quite maudlin. I am brimful of common sense at the present moment, he declared earnestly. You and I could do great things together, if only I could get you to look at one certain matter from my point of view, to see it as I see it. A political matter? she inquired naively. I want to try and persuade you, he confessed, that America has everything in the world to gain from Germany's success, and everything to lose if the Allies should triumph in this war, and Great Britain should continue her tyranny of the seas. It's an extraordinarily interesting subject, Pamela admitted. It is almost as absorbing, he declared, as the other matter which just now lies nearer to my heart. She withdrew her fingers from his sudden clutch. Mr. Fisher, she told him, what I said just now was quite final. I will not be made love to on a steamer. When we land, he continued eagerly, you will be coming to see your brother, won't you? She nodded. Of course, I am going to the Plaza Hotel. That, I suppose, is good news for you, Mr. Fisher. Of course it is, he answered. But why do you say so? It will give you so many opportunities, she murmured of seeing you she shook her head of searching my belongings there was a moment's silence she heard his quick breath through the darkness his voice assumed its harsher tone you believe that it was i who searched your stateroom i am sure that it was you or someone acting for you what is it then of which i am in search he demanded captain graham's formula she replied i think you want that a good deal more than you want me you have it then he asked fiercely she sighed you jumped so to conclusions i didn't say so you went up the stairs you were the only person who went up just at that one psychological moment he had his pocket-book with him when he came in he told holderness so and when you searched him it was gone she remarked calmly dear me how do you know that i searched him fisher demanded how dare you ask me to give away my secrets she replied listen he began striving with an almost painful effort to keep his voice down to the level of a whisper you and i together we could do the most marvellous things i could let you into all my schemes they are great they will be successful after the war is over he held his breath for a moment the tramp of approaching footsteps warned him of the coming of an intruder the captain came to a standstill before their chairs and saluted miss van tail he said there will be a mutiny in the saloon if you don't come down and sing. She almost sprang to her feet. The ship was rolling a little, and she laid her fingers upon his arm. I meant to come long ago, she declared, but Mr. Fisher has been so interesting. You will finish telling me your experiences another time, won't you? she called out over her shoulder. There is so much that I still want to hear. Fisher's reply was almost ungracious. He watched their departure in silence and afterwards leaned further back in his chair. With long, nervous fingers he drew a black cigar from his case and lit it. Then he folded his arms. For more than half an hour he sat there motionless, smoking furiously. He looked out into the chaos of the windy darkness. He heard voices riding upon the seas, shrieking and calling to him, voices to which he had been deaf too long. The burden of these later years of turbulent, brazen, selfish struggling rolled back. 
he had been a sentimentalist once, a willing seeker after things which seemed to have passed him by. At his age, he told himself, a man should still find more than one place in the world. End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com